It's that other classic Spielberg film about kids and aliens. Wait, this one's about kids and pirates. This one is about buried treasure. And the struggle of the working class against the elites. You know the one. This week's episode is about the Goonies. And personally, I feel that the Goonies don't get enough love around here. So let's change that. Let's talk about the Goonies. Hello again, my most excellent friends. How is the wasteland treating you all? Despite all of our hardships and the challenges that we face, we are all still here. And the sun still shines and life is still good. And may that, may that never change. I'm not a child of the 80s. I'm barely a child of the 90s. And while I have a lot of nostalgia for a lot of movies and TV shows of the era, the reality is that I came of age at the start of the new millennium. And it was during those formative years that my passion for movies and TV shows grew, fostered by my father and his hobby. My old man likes to watch movies. That's, that's his hobby. And it's a hobby he passed down to us, a hobby he still indulges in even if he falls asleep on the couch most of the time nowadays. Back when DVDs were at the height of their popularity, he used to rummage through the bin of $5 movies at Walmart, and we would always come home with a handful of DVDs. Most were movies he had seen in the past, and some were movies he had never seen before, but had heard of back in our home country. I'm pretty sure that's how we ended up watching The Goonies, and at the time, it was a movie we saw a few times and enjoyed, and that was it. It was only when we watched it again, when I was a little older, that I truly began to appreciate the atmosphere that the Goonies created. I wasn't the only one. I'm sure that the creators of Stranger Things were paying a little bit more attention than I was. Because the characters they created, the setting and the tone, it all reeks of Spielberg in the 80s. It's got that E.T. feel to it, even if I never saw that. Some people would say that it's an homage. They're not copying his style. They're just using that atmosphere to tell their own story, also said in the 80s. J.J. Abrams said the same thing with that Alien movie he did a few years back. What was it called? Section 8? 8 millimeter? That's something to do with film. Hold on, let me... Let me put this up. It was called uh, Super 8. Uh, never would have guessed that. Someday I'll, I'll have to review Super 8 for this podcast properly. But if I had to describe it to someone, 
I would call it a poor man's imitation of a Spielberg movie from the 1980s. It's even set in the 80s. Because for the last couple of years, everyone and their mothers jumped on that nostalgia wagon. I guess the 80s are seen with those roast into glasses you can buy on Amazon these days. That's what those movies are designed to breed in us. You know, nostalgia. A return to better days, more innocent days. If such an illusion was ever real. Eh, let's just, more on that later, let's come back to that. Like I said, I didn't grasp any of this when I was younger. All I knew was, it was a Spielberg movie, and it was an E.T. And it featured kids, and it was interesting. Look, I got nothing against E.T. Nothing. Like I said before already, I've never even seen E.T., so I can't even judge it. But I've never had the inkling to watch E.T., it's never called out to me. Quick question. Would you say that E.T. became more popular than the Goonies? Off the top of my head, I want to say yes. But I'm not really sure. Also, because I got curious, The Goonies was a story by Spielberg. The fellow that actually directed The Goonies, according to Wikipedia at least, is uh, Richard Donner. If the name sounds familiar, Richard Donner's the same fella that did the old school Superman movies. He also did The Omen, so that's kind of an odd choice there, but hey, it, it kind of works and sometimes that's what it do. So what makes this movie so special? Why is it remembered with such fond memories? What kind of atmosphere did this movie create? And why is it so hard to replicate nowadays? Come wander with me, my fellow travelers, and uh, let's find out together. The easiest way to describe this to someone, to basically tell them what this movie is about, would be as follows. It's about these kids, and the kids, well, they find this map in their attic, and it leads to buried treasure, so they set out to find it. All to the rocking tunes of Cindy Lauper, because, hey, it's, it's the 80s, and why not? not a poor description of the movie i mean that's basically what it's about but like any story what makes this movie memorable are the characters and their motivations and their journey and where they end up in the end is it a happy ending Do they learn some sort of moral lesson are there any interesting subplots going on in the background if it was just about the kids, I have no doubt that it would still be a good movie. Those kids had to carry the movie for the majority of the time. But the story is a bit more nuanced than that. We have exterior factors that drive the movie, that drive the plot, and give us real heartfelt moments in a movie that's silly, in a way only movies from the time were. You see, this movie was made in the real 1980s. It's not a recreation of the times. So what you see is a real look into what the U.S. was like in those times. And I find that fascinating. Again, spoilers inbound because it's not a recent movie. It was made in 1985. So chances are if you didn't grow up with it like we did, you've never seen it. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of movies I've yet to watch. And all that means is I have plenty of movies left watch so do not fret my friends good movies do a lot of things right and one of those things that they do well is to stand the test of time without the aid of nostalgia 
What do I mean by that? Well, nostalgia can be a good thing and a bad thing. But let's come back to the nostalgia. So, there's a bunch of kids running around looking for buried treasure because reasons. And we're gonna, we're gonna get to those reasons because they're pretty important reasons. Like I said, it's not that simple. There's more to it than that. Our heroes risk life and limb in order to accomplish their objectives in order to continue to live out their dreams. So what makes it so unique? Let's start with the simplest of things. Like I said before, this movie screams 80s. And it's not the fake 80s that we see in shows like Stranger Things, but the real thing. You can see it in the way the movie's shot. You can see it in the movie soundtrack, in the, the way the characters get dressed, in the way they talk. It totally shows it's not a recreation. And once you've seen what the real thing is supposed to sound like, what the real thing is supposed to look like, all those recreations, well, they fall short. It starts in the oddest of ways. There's a rally race on the beach, sort of. I mean, I wrote this down because I thought it was going to be important, but it's not really important. It was just kind of this, hey, let's throw this in there because... We kind of need to throw this in there. And Ramsey is the main antagonist. Um, anyone who grew up watching Throw Mama from the Train, this, this was great. <laughs> that's a, that's a story for another day. That's another one of those 80s movies that's just a little bit weird, a little bit odd. Um, anyone who truly knows who Anne Ramsey was immediately recognizes the name. They know what she looks like. And, and most importantly, you know what this lady sounded like. It's a sound that's just embedded into your head. You see her and it echoes in your brain. And like I said, it was delightful to have her as the bad guy in this kid's movie. Because she's definitely, um, she's got the look. She had the look. Which I'm sure that's not what she looked like when she was younger, but you know, as she aged, she found um, a place in Hollywood, and and she did her job really well in this movie. Um, so the kids, this is another thing I wrote this down. This is um, all part of the observations part of this thing. It's just weird little tidbits about this movie. Uh, the kids, so they grew up in this place that they call the Goondocks, and I had to look that up. Um. I guess it's a place called Astoria, and doesn't ring a bell for me. So again, back into the internet, I had to look this up. And when you're watching this film and you're watching the setting for it, all, all I could really think of was the Pacific Northwest, that and, and Bigfoot. Seriously, I wrote down Bigfoot here. Now, do I believe in Bigfoot? We're going to have to talk about Bigfoot in another episode, okay? just uh, Let's just put a pin on that, but... It, yeah, it's Astoria. It's um, basically a, it's a town in the the Pacific Northwest, uh, Northern California, or higher up in those states. Our kids, our heroes, our protagonists—they basically go off on what you can call a final adventure. It's a chance to save their homes because apparently the entire town's being bought, and it's going to be bulldozed by the rich bozos that want to turn the whole thing into a massive country club. The whole rich versus the poor thing, that seemed to be a real common trope in a lot of 80s movies. 
At least that's what it seems like to me. I can't really be sure, but somehow, some way, that's always like a thing. It's a trope, right? I said the word trope. That's what it is. It's such a common thing that um, I know that it's always sunny in Philadelphia had a a spoof, like an episode spoof of that. But for them, it was like the mountain. So I guess there was a lot of snowboarding films that basically were that rich kids versus poor kids. I don't know. I I never seen a snowboarding film, but I've seen a few action like sports action films from the 80s. And that's always like a thing in there. So just just bear with it. It's not a big deal, but it is in the film. As a kid, I didn't really appreciate how well the subplot was written. The whole thing between Andy and Brand and how despite the fact that she's a rich kid, she doesn't really care about that. And from the beginning, you could tell she's got this massive crush on Brand. It wasn't something that was really needed. But looking back at it now, it's it's well appreciated. I liked it. Um, what else? There's um, oh yeah, I like how Troy, which is like the rich douche kid, um, that doesn't really get too much screen time, but he's in there. I like how Troy casually tries to murder Brand with his car. He didn't really know that Brand was gonna survive that fall, and then he does it in front of Andy and Steph, cause. I guess that's how you used to try to impress girls back in the 80s. You know, first degree murder. That and being a creep by trying to uh, look at girls. You know, it's, it's not the best way to get the girl pal. It's a nice little way to give an antagonist a little bit of death. Um, is it though? Is it that? No, he, I think he's just a jerk. He's not a good guy. It's, he's got that. There's definitely some of that 80s cartoon cheesiness, which you would definitely not see nowadays. But more on Troy later. Let's see, what else? Uh, our heroes uh, really struggle to complete their journey. Why did I write that? Of course they struggle. You know, it's not a movie. If, it, if they don't struggle, why, why did I write that? Let's see, let's see. Oh yeah, oh, that's a car. I'm going to have to edit that out. We'll edit that out. So, it takes a few speeches from key members of the group to kind of give them courage, the strength, and the spirit to find the treasure. Yeah, there's these little moments throughout the entire film where our characters suddenly, they, they just break out into speech. Hey, we got to do this. Hey, our time is here. All that sort of stuff. And when I was a kid, I, I always wondered why, why do we suddenly have these moments where we got to talk? And having seen it just recently, and I'm really looking at it, and I know that they're coming, and I know it only takes about like two or three minutes, they're transition um, periods. It's like a point where the movie can jump from one set piece to another piece. So we have a transition point, and well, we need to fill that time out with something, so we might as well uh, have like a little monologue in there. And sure enough, that's that's what it was. <laughs> And you know that I catch it, I'm like, okay, I, I can forgive that. It's not the best way to jump from set piece to set piece, especially with how um how big and elaborate some of them were. But I like it. It's all right. Um, again, definitely part of that '80s charm. All of this is that '80s charm that people like to this day. Ooh, ugh. 
I was uh, so fascinated with Data's inventions as a kid. Haven't seen the movie recently. I still love them to this day. Pinchers of Peril. That has to be my favorite. It's probably his best invention. Comes in clutch in more than one occasion. You gotta love Data. And let me just pause here, right? Um, a little. Let's pause. And I'll say this because I think I totally forgot to say this when we started this. If you haven't seen this movie, obviously I'm going to get into why you should a little later on. But you definitely should. It's a really good, real 80s film with 80s kids at the time. And some of the actors are, well, if you're watching it now for the first time, then they're like, whatever. But some of those kids were like major movie stars at the time. And some of them still are. I mean, Thanos is in this thing. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But in those days, these kids were like the heyday like of Hollywood. So this movie is like really like packed with some of the best that, ha um, some of the best that Hollywood could offer. And Data's one of those kids. Like, if I don't have to describe who Data is, because if you like other movies from the 80s, especially the ones that you know I'm talking about, you're going to recognize who Data is. And he didn't continue to act. He was basically a child actor. But he's still memorable, and I still love him to, to this day. One of the traps, because spoilers inbound, like there's like this whole traps because there's pirates and I guess pirates were really into traps. And I wonder if they were really or is this just this is just like a Hollywood thing that Hollywood says it's so. So everybody just grows up assuming it to be true. I like how, how one of the traps is just basically you got to play the song and that's how you get into the next room. And it comes down to the most unlikeliest of heroes to get them out of that. And it's Andy. And all she's done the whole movie is play love interest to Bran. And there's like a little comic relief in there for her and the other older girl, Steph. But she comes in clutch. She cements her place in the group. I love seeing it. And they could have given that moment to any one of the other kids. But they do it with Andy. I really liked it. I like the fact that if they don't pick up Andy at the beginning of the movie, and they make this journey, yeah, they all die. <laughs> I was like, like, after I watched the movie, and I'm sitting down, and I'm writing these notes, and I'm thinking about, like, the whole sequence of events, um, they weren't really supposed to pick up Andy. They were basically, it was just basically going to be the kids, um, the original kids, you know, the younger teenager ones, and Brand, which is, like, the adult one he's he's not an adult i mean he's still riding on a bike so that might be because he doesn't have any money though that might be the whole rich versus poor thing because brand's supposed to be like in high school and some of the other kids are also supposed to be in high school that's my phone and maybe i edit that out maybe i don't it doesn't matter uh, the point i'm trying to get to is brand was like the only older kid that was supposed to go on this journey. If he was even supposed to go in the first place. 
If the story plays out the way it's supposed to play out, all these kids die in that tunnel. But it doesn't play out like that at all. Uh, Brand shows up, Andy shows up, and at this moment, Andy's the one that actually comes in clutch. Like I said, I, I really like that. Um, enough about that. We'll talk about characters like that later on. Um, what else? Uh, let's see. I wrote two words on my original notes when it comes to pacing. Where am I going with this? Uh, words that I'm going to say out loud here. Good pacing? Uh, and for the most part, that's, that's what this movie has. I guess this, that's what the movie has? Yeah, it has good pacing. Exposition is good. There's, there's lots of it. None of it feels contrived or forced. It's all necessary to the story. We got action sequences, heartfelt moments, large sets. And then the movie takes the smallest of breaks. Um, there's these moments in the film, this kid's movie, where the movie kind of just stops. And that's, I like that because it's to show the audience how grand this adventure truly becomes. And it kind of works. As a kid, it's, it's memorable. As an adult, there's that wonderful sense of nostalgia. There's that word again. Even if it's a movie for kids, uh, in no way, shape, or form is it insulting. It doesn't pull any punches. It is what it is, and that's what makes it great. I like how wacky the end of the movie kind of is because, like, the pacing's really done well up to the end. The ending's kind of, kind of weird. The, the villains, like, go from being super realistic to super clumsy when, like, they can't catch the kids. Um, so the ending's kind of weird. And the final thing that I'll say about some of the observations that I made watching this movie again, like really paying attention to it. The ending's really super Disney. And it's the only part of the movie that feels kind of off. I mean, the whole movie's not the most realistic movie to start with. But at the very least, it's consistent uh, for the most part. Uh, the storyline, how it develops, the setups, the the play, the setups, and the payoffs—it's as realistic as an eighty Spielberg film directed by Richard Donner could be. But the ending, with the jewels and the boat and the paper, little paper slips that go in the air because everybody's celebrating, and all I could really think of is, no, you didn't really accomplish anything. Um. It's not right. I don't know. Like, I can't really say anymore because I don't want to spoil it anymore than I already have. Like, what I'm trying to do with my observations is just basically give you tidbits of what makes the movie, like, really cool, really interesting to the point where, ooh, I kind of want to see what he's really talking about. I want to piece together all these weird little dots that he's pointed on the map because I want to see how they come together. That's what I'm trying to do. And the ending isn't bad. Like, I'm, I'm not telling you the ending ruins the whole movie. It doesn't do that. It's just, you watch it, and it's supposed to be, like, out of left field. Oh, my God, you did this, and because you did this, we're saved, and... No, that's not how that works. But the chip at the end is kind of cool. So there's that. So, why did I like it? 
It's classic movie making. It's classic storytelling presented in a way that's just not done now. It's such a unique way of filming and storytelling that, like I said at the beginning, some people have sought to imitate, to recreate. And this is apparent very early in the movie. Like I said before, Stranger Things takes a lot of inspiration from movies like this one and E.T. It just does it so much better, you could say, because it has the luxury of time. Think about this, and it's really something that just came to mind. Uh, earlier on, I talked about Troy, who's supposed to be Bran's romantic rival throughout the film. At least that's what he wants to be. Because we don't really see anything develop from this subplot. It's clear from the get-go that Andy wants to be with Bran, and Bran really likes Andy. They're very lovey-dovey with each other, and that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. All we get out of Troy is just a few comedic moments, an attempt at murder. Troy is like a two-bit character. He's crass, he's rude, he's insensitive. He's the embodiment of every male 80s stereotype macho rude boyfriend slash rival that the main character has to defeat in order to get with the girl and sometimes that doesn't even happen. I'm looking at you, 16 Candles. There's a movie I'm itching to review. Cause I love me some John Hughes movies, you know what I mean? That's uh, sarcasm. Troy, just in, in essence, Troy is the worst. He's made to be the worst, and the actor does his job tremendously well, and yet, with enough time, and a change of heart, and some decent character development, and we go from Troy to Steve. And we all love Steve. Steve is, is great. He's probably the best thing to come out of Stranger Things, and nothing comes remotely close. The only reason we get a character like Steve is because of the groundwork that a lot of these 80s movies did when it came to the proper use of tropes and the stories they told using those tropes. The Goonies tells this grand story of hidden pirate treasure. Mixed in this is this throwback to childhood that most of us never got. I mean, we didn't live like that. That whole idea of being free to roam and explore and spend time with friends, all of it without the entrapments of adulthood. There's just a dash of something else in this movie. And you know, this last part, this last little part um, has been killing me. I haven't been able to finish the script for reasons that I can't seem to grasp until I had to make the decision to just write, to understand that my understanding of what I wanted to say about this movie was limited. And that simply putting words to paper was, was the best thing I could do. Throughout the whole movie, the kids constantly talk about the looming future. The fact that if they can't save their town, it's going to be torn down. And they're all going to have to move. And that notion, going to a new place and meeting new people, new schools, a new life, and losing their friends. That's the worst thing you can do to a kid. It reminds me of something that happened to me a long time ago. I wasn't the one who moved. It was a good friend of mine. A kid I didn't really know for more than three, maybe four years, but we were good friends. And the last time we hung out, we told jokes. 
We talked about everything and nothing at all. And at the end of the day, when I had to go home, there was no discussion of what would happen next. I simply said, I'll see you later, man. And, you know, I never did. We lost touch and that was the end of it. I was older. It didn't hit me that hard in those days. But I wasn't the same after that night anyway. To have to lose your friends, your life, your town, these are real fears that a kid's movie properly conveyed, that this movie properly showed. Like, having to grow up because we all do, there's definitely a hint of that in this movie. But none of it's heavy-handed. There's a few grand speeches here and there about making the best of their time because it eventually runs out, but none of them really damper the mood. Like I said before, it's like there used to be transitions. They're, they're used as transitions from one set piece to another. This is, again, done really well in this movie. The movie's got good pacing, I said that. Characters are introduced well enough, early enough in the movie. So that we appreciate them all. Even the likes of Steph and Andy. Who kind of just show up last. So we don't get a ton of screen time with them. Like we should have. Okay. This is a serious question to you all. Because I got to ask. Because if I don't. If I don't ask this. Then this whole episode. Will have been for nothing. I just saw this movie. I've seen it enough times in the past. And the reason I say this. Is because maybe. Maybe. It's my personal preference is speaking for me a little bit but was Steph like prettier than Andy or am I just imagining it? I feel like they had to scuff up her hair give her some glasses like make her hair short to change that fact they kind of hit her face behind those glasses it's this old Hollywood trick that they're still uh that they're still trying to pull but it wasn't just me right uh, Steph was prettier right I'm I'm not imagining this am I I, I, they did everything possible to tip the scales in Andy's favor. You know, she got the long, wavy hair, the pretty eyes, the cheerleader outfit, and she's got the romantic interest. And Steph got nothing. She was just the duff. And she wasn't even fat. She was just the other girl, the one that's there to round up the numbers. That's, that's a shame. I bet with enough character development, maybe she turns into a Robin from Stranger Things. You know, just quirky fun character that doesn't necessarily need a romantic interest to be interesting she just is she's charming she's fun she's brave she's a solid supporting character with a great fan base that likes her not because of what she looks like but because of who she is and man that's what i'm talking about when i when, when i talk about the luxury of time time is just this great equalizer it just basically makes everyone the same I don't, I don't know, man. That's just, that's just me thinking out loud. But it's not out of left field. A good writer will do that. They'll create sympathy, empathy, and they'll elicit an emotional response from the audience in order to get them to make that connection. Sorry about that. Give me a second. Speaking of that, let's answer one of the most important questions that you can ask yourself about anything. Whether it be a movie, a book, an anime, a show, that question is, what does it make me feel? And in one word, it's our magic word, it's the word that we've been using throughout this entire review. It's nostalgia. Earlier on I said that nostalgia is a funny word. 
because it means so much to so many. It's it's a good thing. It's a bad thing. If used properly, it evokes that warm, fuzzy feeling that can only be described as home. And that's everything to some people. And at the same time, if used incorrectly, it's a total turnoff. It taints the entire experience, the show, the movie. It's totally ruined them. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I kind of get why people feel that way too. Let's elaborate a little bit on this because it's important. Here's the thing. I'm pretty sure that movies like The Goonies didn't start out with that in mind. And that, that there is the rub. Intention is everything. And the best lesson that anyone who seeks to tell a story is the following. Just tell your story. That's all. Don't worry about external factors. The most important thing is that you tell your story as you envision it. And that's what movies like E.T. and The Goonies do. And they did it well because that's the only thing that really mattered. Here's a, a more modern example. Hold on. How many of you grew up with Shrek? By the time that Shrek came out, I was older, like 11 or 12. So almost out of the range that the target audience was. It's a, it's a kid's movie. However, it was following that format that Pixar, it was following the format that Pixar had almost perfected by then, you know, appealing to kids and adults. And it became a huge hit. Bigger. It's bigger than that. You think when this movie was made, they were thinking about that cultural hit that it was going to become? You think the animators were working on this late night, quietly thinking, Gee whiz, man, I hope this movie becomes a part of the shared cultural experience for an entire generation. Listen, I'm sure they had hopes. They wanted a piece of that animation pie that Pixar had carved for itself. I know they weren't the only game in town. Disney had reigned supreme for years, decades, but there was plenty of upstarts, and DreamWorks was definitely one of those challengers. The people behind Shrek wanted to make money. They wanted to be Toy Story. You, you can't fault them for that. But at the same time, they had to put in the work. You needed a great story, great characters, and the right actors to give life to these characters. And they got all that and then some. If we start talking about Shrek, man, we might be be here a while. That's not the point. The point is the story, the project, the goal. That came first. All the accolades and the nostalgia, that's a byproduct. You don't plan for nostalgia, it just sort of happens. Like I said, I said something about bringing about the right emotional response. You gotta make the audience feel something. You gotta make them care. That's true of everything. But Nostalgia, tricky business, because if for one second your audience feels that you want them to be nostalgic for something, that turns on you, and it doesn't matter what your story is. Think about Star Wars. The nostalgia that we all feel for Star Wars is well-earned. Well, I'm saying that weird Star Wars. Well, I'm going to leave that in. I don't care. There are great stories. I mean, a lot of great. Ah. Uh, there are great stories that mean a lot to a great number of people. When we saw them when we were kids, whether we saw them when we were kids, or we came to truly appreciate them when we came of age, the nostalgia of the original series and the prequel trilogy 
That's legit. But the way that the sequel trilogy was made, you can clearly tell that it was made by people who sought to elicit that specific emotional response from the audience. And it worked, at least for a while. The problem is that it's artificial. There's nothing behind these emotions. It's a cheap imitation of the original thing. And that trickery, that's bad. It's part of the reason why those movies left such a sour taste in your mouth. It was bad enough that they were poorly written. But to resort to nostalgia to get people to watch them? That's just not gonna fly. And the response was, well, the response. We all, we all know how that story ended. Super 8 suffers from the same problem. It tries to tell a story that's so similar, that felt like a throwback, that it was called an homage to storytelling of the past. It's a love letter to Spielberg movies of days long gone. You, you can call it whatever you want. We all know what you really wanted to do. And the result is, again, apparent. Super 8 is not a bad movie. By no means, but it's not a great one either. To say it was mediocre is also just not quite accurate. Again, I think nostalgia is to blame for this. The movie didn't have to be set in the 80s, but it was. The cast didn't have to be a bunch of kids, but it was. And the alien, the lighting, even the music is out to hit the same beats, follow this very familiar rhythm. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it shouldn't be the one redeeming quality that your movie has. I've been mentioning Stranger Things here and there. And even that show, as good as it is, it's a little guilty of nostalgia baiting. I, th I think that the reason that Stranger Things gets away with it is because it has other elements that it pulls off really well. And the fact that it's a series that can benefit from seasons and changes, it's enough to hide all the unsightly elements of using nostalgia the wrong way. Does that make any sense? I. I hope it did. I think I got my point across. I think that at some point, there's that word again, we'll address this whole issue of nostalgia again. Maybe, maybe by then I can make a better argument. Having said all of that, would I recommend this movie? Yes, I would. I would 100% tell you if you've never seen this movie, go watch it, rent it, stream it, sail the high seas if that's your cup of tea. And get it. You won't be disappointed. It's not a masterpiece by any means. It's cheesy. It reeks of the 80s. It's silly. It's goofy. And it works. Because all those emotions are genuine. It's the story of a group of kids who set on an adventure as a way to take with them one last hurrah. It's them trying to outrun the fact that they all gotta grow up. That change is inevitable. And part of growing up is coming to terms with that very fact. The ending kind of negates that. But it's still there. It's still looming. And it's something to think about after the movie's long done. Alas, my friends, we've reached the very end of this journey. And this one, this one, it wasn't easy. When I sought out to simply review this movie to share with you all my thoughts, my feelings, my views, and what this movie meant to me, I didn't think it was going to be so hard. I really struggled to put all of these words on a paper, and I, I don't really know why. 
I came to the realization that I didn't really have anything special to say about this movie, but that in of itself wasn't a bad thing. I usually try to give you guys some sort of an original idea, a different perspective on things. Honestly, I, I feel like I felt to do that with this movie. Sometimes movies are movies, and that's good enough. The Goonies as a movie does a lot of things right, and you're going to have a good time watching it. Perhaps a few viewings, after a few viewings, you'll have reached the same conclusions that I did. It's not a perfect movie, but it doesn't have to be. And its shortcomings are not enough to justify calling it a bad one either, if that makes any sense. What's important, however, is that we saw this journey unfold and that the story was told. Once again, my friends, I am so glad you came along for the ride. I'm sure our paths will cross once again. I want to thank the whole lot of you for making such a journey with me. To take time out of your day and wander with us, it means the world to us. And I hope that at the very least, you were entertained. If you want more, go ahead and listen to our previous episodes. All our content is available for free one day. I may decide to record some premium content and maybe then I'll charge for it. <laughs> probably, probably not. We'll see. Till then, take care of yourselves, my fellow travelers, and beware the wasteland.